Good morning or good noon, whatever time of day it is. Uh, welcome to our, our presentation called Landmark Legal Challenge. Uh, I don't know if you can read that or if we can get the lights down. Uh, if we could, there we go. Uh, reversing EPA's regulation of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. Uh, specifically, it is um, on what is called the Combined Petition for Judicial Review of EPA's Rules on Greenhouse Gases. I'm just going to give you a little history to set the stage for our panel presentation. Um, little history, okay? This starts really in many ways with Waxman-Markey, a bill that passed the uh, Congress on June 26, 2009 that would limit emissions of carbon dioxide to 83% below 2005 levels, a mere 38 years from today. And the, the key in Waxman-Markey to understand why this issue wound up going into the courts and why it didn't, wasn't passed by the Senate is uh, me and my apparently few, few friends pointed out that the emissions per capita that would be allowed in 2050 were the same as the emissions per capita in 1867. And yet this would have no effect on temperature that would be detectable over 50 years. Consequently, the political process bottomed out. This is the Rasmussen Approval Index. It is strongly approved minus strongly disapproved. It's a three-day moving average. So June 29th was the first day that the Rasmussen Approval Index had three days of cap-and-trade following the arm twisting by, by Henry Waxman uh, in the Congress and all the telephone calls from the President and all the publicity. Right there, where it crosses the line and goes negative, is June 29th, 2009. And as you can see, it has not been positive for one day since. In the Senate, this was noticed. This was also noticed, too. This is the generic congressional ballot from Rasmussen, which comes out every Monday. And on the Monday following the passage of cap and trade, blue is Democrat, green is neutral, and red is Republican. The generic congressional ballot switched from blue to red and has only been red for one week since, which resulted in the great electoral debacle of 2010. And the President was asked in the first question after uh, uh, the next morning, on the Wednesday morning, on November 3rd, the uh, first question was about cap-and-trade because people knew that cap-and-trade had been pivotal in a number of, of races, and in every race where cap-and-trade was an issue uh, that was a close race, the Republicans won it. In the Senate, by the way, in every close race where cap-and-trade was not an issue because it never came up, the Democrats won. So. Here's what happened is the way to skin the cat was to send it to the EPA. A little bit of history on this. Uh, Massachusetts versus EPA is 2007 Supreme Court case in which the court held that EPA had to state whether or not carbon dioxide was a pollutant that endangered human health and welfare. And if it did, it was required to regulate it under the Clean Air Act. Well, needless to say, the Bush administration punted immediately after Mass v. EPA, uh, and instead, um, just less than 90 days into the Obama administration's thick document plumps on everybody's desk, proposed finding of endangerment in April 2009, uh, and then the endangerment finding itself came out on December 7, 2009, the first day of the ill-fated Copenhagen Conference uh, on climate change because the President had to have some bona fide to take to that conference. And since then, EPA has issued regulations and proposed regulations. Uh, by February 16, 2010, Alabama, Virginia, and Texas seek judicial review. 
in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia, and now we get to why we are here. That review was granted and the arguments were made on February 28th, 29th, that's the last two days, um, in for, on the consolidated petitions for judicial review. We have four panelists who were key uh, in the appellate court uh, hearing in the last two days. The first of them is Duncan Getchell. Uh, he has a BA in history from Emory in 1971 and a JD from Duke. People who are from UVA suspect that sometimes. In 1974, and he is the head of appellate practice for McGuire Woods in Richmond uh, after his graduation. Now he's elected a member of the American Law Institute and a fellow of the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers. Duncan Getchell is the Solicitor General for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Each participant will have about 11 minutes, and uh, I will be holding up cards. And Duncan, take it away. We can have the lights back up, please. Thank you. It's, uh, it's hard to know what the current status uh, would be in the Supreme Court of uh, <clears throat> CO2 issues because uh, Massachusetts versus EPA, uh, Massachusetts was ultimately narrowly found to have standing because of two unrebutted affidavits uh, on the science. Uh, the, the Bush administration did not counter those affidavits for whatever reason. Um, the Supreme Court, though, last term, when it uh, uh, handed down the decision refusing to recognize a federal common law nuisance doctrine that could be used to regulate uh, interstate uh, uh, emissions, uh, dropped a footnote saying this court, of course, takes no position on the uh, validity of the, uh, of the science, uh, whether this is a real phenomenon. Um, you can read from that what you want. Uh, right now, we're in a different court uh, with, a, with a known panel because we've uh, uh, just appeared in front of them. And one of the issues that did prompt uh, questioning, uh, I think penetrating questioning from, uh, on, from both sides, was the issue that I particularly argued, which is reconsideration. Uh, it's, a, it's a pure legal question. It uh, does not really... Uh, require uh, any uh, nod in the direction of uh, Massachusetts versus EPA. And, and here's, here's the issues, here are the issues involved. There's a provision in the Clean Air Act that says if an objector within the time of, um, limit permitted for judicial review raises an objection that could not have been made before the uh, record was closed, um, that um, r raises an issue of central relevance um, that the administrator shall grant rehearing with notice and comment. Now, for 30 years, the agency has interpreted the central relevance uh, standard as meaning an evidence that would su materially support an argument that the rules should be revised. Well, after uh, uh, what is popularly known as Climate Gate, uh, a number of, of, of uh, entities uh, petitioned for reconsideration on the grounds that the new material that had become available uh, threw into substantial question all three 
of the lines of uh, evidence that the EPA had resolved, uh, had resorted to in uh, making its endangerment finding. Uh, the first, uh, according to the EPA, was its clear understanding of the physical processes involved. And of course, the intramural uh, uh, comments back uh, and forth between the very small coterie of climate scientists who define the field of climate science uh, acknowledged that their understanding of many of the central processes is very, very poor. Um, the second line of authority that was uh, relied upon uh, was uh, historical reconstruction of temperature. Well, at the center of that, of course, is the controversy swirling around uh, Professor Michael Mann's uh, hockey stick. Uh, but it, it is certainly questionable uh, whether or not uh, uh, historical reconstruction of climate uh, temperatures uh, can be validly accomplished uh, within the margin of, of statistical error. I mean, it, 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 it is altogether uh, probable to me, anyway, uh, that, that uh, any data that you collect is noise rather than statistically valid. But, and there, were, there was hand-wringing about uh, the quality of the, uh, of the historical uh, reconstructions and, and, or what we would uh, prefer to call candid uh, admissions uh, of the weakness of, the, of some of the reconstructions. Uh, the final uh, uh, web of evidence that the EPA relied upon was modeling. And I think famously the uh, emails show that there is a, a, a great deal uh, wrong with uh, the way the models uh, uh, predict uh, the present, uh, bringing into a great question whether they can predict uh, the future. So we would, we would say that we certainly met uh, the, uh, the central relevance standard uh, because we had evidence that would support an argument that the uh, 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 rule should be revised. And let's look at what the rule is. Um, the, the rule that we asked to be reconsidered was the endangerment finding. Well, the endangerment finding is simply a statement that we have uh, concluded the following about the danger. And so if, in fact, um, you alter or supplement that finding, you have, in fact, change the rule, is our argument. And what EPA did uh, in response for the petitions for reconsideration was not to say, oh, well, we've looked at your uh, uh, submission and it does not satisfy the uh, standard and therefore we're denying reconsideration. Uh, because if they had done that, they would have to take their chances on judicial review uh, that, in fact, we had objectively satisfied uh, of the standard that Congress had prescribed. So instead, uh, they uh, uh, decided to uh, review the literature again and uh, to issue a 360-page uh, document uh, supporting the denial of reconsideration, which included studies that hadn't existed at the time that they made the initial determination, uh, which included a 75-page uh, reworking of the evidence uh, issued by the EPA, which included uh, EPA actually 
uh, running numbers to validate uh, one of the, uh, of the new studies. So uh, our, our position is that when you had to do that in order to shore, shore up your initial finding, uh, that obviously you should have permitted uh, uh, real reconsideration with notice and comment. Uh, the, the vice here is that uh, uh, you can look at the new evidence and then you can say something about it no matter how vulnerable to criticism and never have to answer for it. And that's the whole purpose of, of the comment uh, requirement. Interestingly, uh, during the course of, of oral argument, uh, the T Department of Justice conceded that there is a point at which if you put new materials in the record, you have to permit comment. Uh, we, we hope the court will agree with us that that point has been uh, passed here and that uh, there will have to be a reconsideration of the endangerment finding. Next up, next up is Patrick Day, Pat Day. Those of you who know anything about thoroughbred racing know that Pat Day was a great rider and he just got a little big, uh, had to get off the horse. He's with, uh, um, he graduated from the University of Michigan in economics in 1980 and has his JD from the University of Wyoming in 1984. Uh, with the Coalition for Responsible Regulation, uh, he submitted the first petition uh, for, uh, against the EPA. Uh, he has, with Holland and Hart in Cheyenne, Wyoming, Holland and Hart has been very prominent uh, both in Cheyenne and in Denver on this issue. So, Pat. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I have to tell you, it's really nice to be talking to the group of people instead of having the large group of people behind me, which is what I had the last two days in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and we're, we're going to look forward to your questions because I'm confident that no matter how aggressive any of your questions may be, they'll be gentle compared to what we experienced the last couple of days. Um, we filed the first challenge to the endangerment finding on a number of grounds, but I was actually tasked this week with arguing a specific legal point that we think has been fundamentally lost in the shuffle and has to be really thought through carefully from a policy perspective because what's at stake fundamentally in our view is the basic principle of reasoned decision-making by an agency. What EPA did here, as you all probably know, is they effectively just took the IPCC's fourth assessment report and adopted it as their endangerment finding. But the IPCC's assessment report and those of the subsequent other reports that rely on that, none of that was framed, put together, constructed or thought through with respect to the Clean Air Act. You can't necessarily go from the existence of a danger and translate that immediately into effective and legal rec regulation. What EPA has done here is they have taken the position that the Supreme Court decision in Mass versus EPA limits their consideration to just the science. But what does that really fundamentally mean? EPA has said that if, there's, if science shows the existence of any hypothetical uh, non-falsifiable risk, 
then they are authorized to find endangerment. And what EPA says is, if we find there's a danger, that's enough, we're done, we'll cut it out, we'll set it aside, and then having found a danger, we will now sit down and roll out our regulations in the manner that we want without once ever meaningfully asking the question whether regulations under the Clean Air Act will do anything about it at all. I mean, think about it for a moment. How many of you have read one media report to the effect that EPA's greenhouse gas regulations are going to do anything meaningful to address the risk that's been found of climate change? This is not an insubstantial question, but it is one that's unique perhaps to greenhouse gases. But this is a global phenomenon, and it's one where any undertaking from a regulatory perspective in the United States has to be un understood in that context. And to give you just a sense of what I mean, in the automobile rule, which was the subsequent regulation adopted after the finding of endangerment, EPA has estimated that the effect of the rule will be a reduction in global temperatures of between six thousandth and fifteen hundredths of a degree Celsius 90 years from now. Let's assume, and that, that's based on the computer models, which Harry's going to talk about, which actually don't predict anything, but we'll give EPA for now the, you know, the benefit of the doubt and assume that the modeled projections are reasonably dependable. That's too small an impact for us to measure. If it happens 90 years from now, we'll never know it. But the consequence of undertaking regulation of these gases to the American economy, indeed to the world's economy, is phenomenal. I'm, I'm going to just give you a couple of figures right out of EPA's brief. Um, absent relief from the regulatory consequences of the Clean Air Act as written, which EPA is asking for, EPA estimates that what are currently about 14,700 sources that would need what we call Title V permits, that that number will jump to 6.1 million. Instead of getting your Title V permit in six to 10 months, EPA estimates it will take 10 years. Now think about that for a minute. That's 10 years to build any new facility at all. You have to wait on your permit. This is if we impose the Clean Air Act as written. EPA estimates it would take them 230,000 full-time government employees to process the, permits, process the permits. It would take 1.4 billion hours of work just to process the permits. We're not talking about the economic cost of regulation. The EPA estimates it would be about a $21 billion a year in government expense to process the permits. That's if you apply the Clean Air Act as written to the consequences EPA says follow from initiating regulation. Even EPA admits that's absurd. But more fundamentally, setting aside how absurd that is, what do you get for all of that? We, we were litigating before the appellate court a stack of rules that if I stood them all up would be about this high, single space, too small for me to read at my age without glasses. And nowhere in that stack 
Nowhere yet has EPA once said what meaningful health or welfare benefit will be obtained from all these rules. And that's a consequence of EPA taking the position that the consequences of its rules and whether or not its rules would be, would be effective is not something that it can consider in any fashion whatsoever when it finds endangerment. But it's our legal position that you can't fashion a regulatory program to address a health and welfare risk without relying on that portion of the science that will inform whether and if so to what extent a policy response in the form of a regulation will be effective. In other words, the science of endangerment is just not, not just the science of the risk. It is also that portion of the science that will lay the groundwork, if one is possible, for a rational regulatory response. You have to connect the risk to what you can do to address it with your regulations before you pass the regulation. And if you don't do that, you get a regulation that triggers what the Chamber of Commerce estimates to be up to a trillion dollar cost to the economy for no defined benefit at all. Where we're sitting today is this unleashed suite of regulations where EPA has not yet explained to anybody whether there's going to be a meaningful benefit to the climate. We contend that six thousandths of a degree 90 years from now is far too trivial to justify this enormous cost. And from a policy perspective, whatever you may think about the risk of global warming or how real or not real you may feel it is, it certainly should be the case for all of us that any regulatory response be rational in light of the benefits and the costs that you're trading off. Um, it's, a, it's a principle known as the proportionality norm. You really shouldn't be regulating things and imposing a cost by the regulation that exceeds the benefit that you get from the regulation, because then all you're doing is subtracting from everybody by dragging everything down for no benefit. There should be a net benefit trade-off. That analysis EPA is deliberately not making because they've construed the endangerment to limit them to just consideration of the existence of a risk and not whether the risk can be effectively regulated if they respond to it. We think that that is a fundamental legal flaw in EPA's interpretation of the Clean Air Act because by divorcing your endangerment assessment from its subsequent regulatory consequences, what you really are doing is you're, you're justifying any regulation you want to impose without being required to show that there's meaningful benefit and without really, in my view, frankly disclosing to the regulated public what they're going to have to pay to get that benefit. And there's yet a more fundamental problem than that. If EPA proceeds to regulate under the Clean Air Act for no meaningful benefit, it runs the risk fundamentally of creating the impression in our policymakers that global climate change has been meaningfully addressed. EPA is regulating it. We've got the problem fixed. Let's move on to the next thing. Even those who feel passionately about the risk should not want the perception created that it's been addressed when it's not been. But that's exactly the path that EPA is taking us down, and we think that fundamentally not only is the scientific evaluation flawed, as my colleague Harry McDougald will address, 
but EPA is starting down a bunch of policy responses that aren't going to meaningfully address the risk at all anyway, and not really telling anybody that that's true. Thanks. Thank you. We will take questions after, the, after all the speakers have finished, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, next up is Ted Hazi-Antic, uh, Senior Counsel for the Pacific Legal Foundation in Sacramento, um, uh, English uh, BA from the University of Connecticut in 1973, and a JD from the U University of Oklahoma in 1976. Um, the, he is, uh, was addressing issues with the Science Advisory Board for the EPA, uh, and he was at the, uh, at there to, um, divide, to provide technical information to the appellate court. Ted? We have a new auditorium, by the way, at Cato on March 7th. Thank you very much, uh, Patrick. Um, Pacific Legal Foundation is a not-for-profit organization uh, dedicated to litigating in three areas, uh, protecting property rights, individual rights, and in support of a balanced approach to environmental regulation. Uh, we looked at the endangerment finding when it was promulgated in December of 2009 and started scratching our heads because there was no indication whatsoever that the finding had been submitted to a group called the Science Advisory Board. Um, and before I get into the substance of the presentation, I'm just going to ask uh, you to help me out with two questions, please, by a show of hands. Uh, does anybody know what the Science Advisory Board is here? Raise your hand. Actually, very few. Second question, is there anyone here from the Science Advisory Board? I, I see no hands out there. Uh, just by way of background, in 1978, Congress passed a statute establishing the Science Advisory Board, which was intended to be a peer, re uh, peer uh, review panel of the top scientists in their individual specialty areas uh, designed to give credence and credibility to the technical and scientific aspects of EPA rulemaking under a variety of different statutes, the Clean Air Act being just one of them. And since 1978, when uh, the, the law uh, came on the books, EPA has consistently complied with the Science Advisory Board Act, which basically requires that when a rule is uh, published in the Federal Register uh, as a proposed regulation seeking comment from the public, at that time, EPA must submit that proposed regulation to the Science Advisory Board to get peer review from the top experts on the Science Advisory Board panel. So in December, uh, actually when the rule was proposed earlier uh, in, in 2009, we, we looked at uh, the preamble, we looked at the background documents, we looked at the language of the proposed regulation, and we saw zero evidence that EPA had uh, sent the proposed endangerment finding for greenhouse gases to the Science Advisory Board for peer review. We filed the Freedom of Information Act with the agency and many, many months later received a reply to the effect that no, we did not submit 
this uh, uh, proposed regulation to the Science Advisory Board. Uh, when EPA published the final regulation, December of 2009, there was still no indication that during the public comment period the proposed regulation had been submitted to the SAB uh, uh, during the, the period. So we challenged EPA's uh, promulgation of the endangerment finding based on a pure legal violation. Science Advisory Board statute says that you have to submit all Clean Air Act regulations for peer review to the Science Advisory Board. Uh, EPA did not do that in this case. They missed a step in the regulatory process. Therefore, EPA has to do it over, and the court should remand uh, the, uh, the regulation back to EPA to reopen the public comment period during which EPA must submit for formal review uh, a reproposed endangerment finding uh, to the Science Advisory Board. Uh, one of the beauties of, of this clear and simple argument is it is completely unaddressed in Massachusetts v. EPA, the Supreme Court case that in, in, engendered the endangerment finding. Um, and uh, in the briefings, uh, it, it, was, it was really kind of curious. We uh, submitted our uh, group uh, uh, consolidated um, uh, petition uh, in, in the briefings. Uh, and uh, in response, uh, EPA, basically the best argument that they came up with was, well, your uh, issue of Science Advisory Board has been waived because you didn't uh, include it in the first brief. And of course, that was completely untrue because an entire subsection of the first brief was devoted to the very fact that EPA failed to submit the proposed regulation to the Science Advisory Board. Um, now, uh, unfortunately, dur uh, during the oral argument, uh, uh, the uh, three-judge panel had no questions of me on the specific issue of the Science Advisory Board. But I will say uh, I, was, I was introduced as being available to answer uh, questions should the panel have any. The, uh, the government attorney, uh, 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 at the very end of his presentation, said, oh, incidentally, I, I heard that Mr. Hadjiantich over there is the SAB fellow for the petitioners. I'm the SAB guy for the government. And immediately, uh, the chief judge asked uh, an SAB question, which actually gave me hope, oh, maybe I get to say something today. So he, he asked the SAB question. Uh, I, I guess it took the, uh, the government lawyer about 15 seconds to answer it. And then right afterwards, the, uh, the, the chief judge said, well, I see your time is up. Sit down. And he didn't turn to me and say, what do you have to say about this? So it was disappointing that I didn't actually have a chance to address what I think is just a very clear-cut legal issue in this case. It doesn't, it doesn't argue the science at all. It doesn't argue anything uh, that's blocked by Massachusetts EPA, uh, and it's simply based on a clear violation of the, uh, the SAB statute by the EPA. And one of, the, one of the, the things that we take great pride in at Pacific Legal Foundation uh, is the fact that, uh, among other things, we're a watchdog of government to make sure 
that the government complies with the law just like the rest of us do. And when the government becomes a scoff law, we hold their feet to the fire. And that's what we're doing in this SAB argument. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ted. Um, our last panelist is Harry McDougald from the Southeast Legal Foundation. I had the, the pleasure of working with Harry on an amicus brief uh, in the Supreme Court case related to regulation via the uh, American um, Electric Power. And I can tell you that, that he pulls no punches. Uh, we made a de minimis argument, and meaning that this is not going to do anything about climate change. And it was very elegantly stated. He has his bachelor's degree from Brown in 1980 in American Civilization, a JD from the University of Georgia in 1985. And he has been involved in civil uh, and appeal practice since then. And he has been with the Southeastern Legal Foundation as an advisor and as counsel for many, many years. Harry? Oh, oh, we're supposed to put it up by Thank you very much. I'm sure it's occurred to some of you to wonder what in the world is a Brown grad doing here on this issue, but uh, strange thing, stranger things have happened. Um, I've got a uh, PowerPoint, which uh, hopefully will not turn into a disaster. I've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, and once we get it out, the, the, the Southeastern Legal Foundation challenged all four rules in the EPA's suite of regulations. Uh, the labor that we applied was primarily devoted to the endangerment finding, attempting to show that the uh, EPA's position violated the Clean Air Act in that it was arbitrary and capricious or uh, irrational. The standard of review for the agency's findings is extremely difficult for a petitioner to overcome. Uh, the agency gets a very high level of deference, particularly on science issues. But at the end of the day, the decision has to be rational and not arbitrary and capricious. And our pitch to the court was that it did not comply with that requirement. <clears throat> There's a number of cases that address the use of computer models and regulations. And the test is, uh, there are quite a few that say this, but the language I like is that there must be a complete analytic defense of the models and that uh, they'll throw the model out if it has no rational relationship to the reality that it purports to represent. <clears throat> this is the conclusion of EPA that we focused our attack on, and it's the attribution of the cause of warming that EPA adopted verbatim from the IPCC's fourth assessment report. And in particular, in particular, what we focused our attention on is the phrase, very likely, which is a defined term which means a certainty exceeding 90 percent. We said that was an irrational conclusion. EPA's conclusion is based on three lines of evidence, temperature records, a physical understanding of climate, and computer models. The high certainty conclusion is irrational because each of these three lines of evidence is itself subject to very high uncertainty. And it is, as a logical proposition, those cannot be thrown into a blender and have you pour out a highly certain conclusion. So this was the question that we were asking ourselves. How can you combine those and come out with a highly certain conclusion and you can see that Captain Planet does not know the answer? All right, the first line of evidence is the temperature records. <clears throat> the CCSP says flat out that the instrumental temperature record is insufficient to conduct an attribution analysis. There's no question about that. It's not long enough, it's not broad enough, it's not good enough. You just can't do it. 
<clears throat> Another problem with the global warming is the warming is not global, and it hasn't been warming since 97 or 98. There are regional differences. Some parts of the globe are cooling. Other parts have no trend. Other parts have mild trends. In the regions where it is warming, in the northern hemisphere, and particularly the Arctic, <clears throat> it is within historic norms. And I'm sure Mr. Michaels can go on for quite a while. Since 1940, we've had approximately 20 years of warming despite continuously increasing CO2 levels. The NRC, National Research Council, concluded that the medieval warm period, that it was only merely plausible that, that, was, that we're warmer today than it was then. Merely plausible. This is the uh, Arctic temperature trend. Over the century, you see it was warmer in the 1930s. And that's where the greatest warming has occurred recently. This is a chart showing all-time record highs by state by decade. The records are all in 1930s. That's in the, northern, that's in the U.S. This is heat wave index in the U.S. Again, all the longest heat waves in the 1930s. The recent period barely shows up. Extreme weather events, drought and rain. There's no trend. EPA and IPCC rely extensively, ritualistically, on the incantation of extreme events. We could give a long and interesting presentation about the systematic representation of the science of extreme events, but we just don't have time. This is the relationship between CO2 and temperature in the 20th century. This comes from Joe DeLeo. The correlation is 0.44 which you know, if, you, if you took college statistics, you know that's not very good. Uncertainties in the physical understanding, the primary ones relate to the sun and clouds. I did get a question about the sun, but it was more of a lecture than a question. Um, a huge level of uncertainty in the physical understanding has to do with feedbacks. The direct warming effect of CO2 is small and benign. All the adverse effects come from feedback, positive feedbacks that are theorized and programmed in the models to jack up the warming by a factor of three. There are huge uncertainties in climate feedbacks. They don't know the magnitude of cloud feedbacks. And outside the tropics, they don't even know whether they're positive or negative. <clears throat> this is another critically important failure of the theory. And it's a prediction of a hot spot in the upper troposphere in the tropics. It's a critical prediction to the theory. Every single computer model relied on by the IPCC and the EPA predicts the occurrence of the upper tropospheric hot spot. There's a huge wealth of empirical data collected from multiple sources and systems that show the hot spot just isn't there. <clears throat> That's a big problem. That's a big problem for the warmest. And it's a big problem because the definition of the scientific method is given by Richard Feynman in a very direct and eloquent way is that if your theory makes predictions that are contradicted by real world evidence, then your theory is wrong. And it just doesn't matter who you are. So even a redneck lawyer from Atlanta can point that out. <laughs> now, the, uh, on modeling, these are quotations from EPA's documents. And uh, the cloud uncertainty translates into a huge problem in modeling. They've got no idea how to model clouds. And they basically admit it. 
And they, but they also say that in order to model climate correctly, you have to be able to model clouds. So, well, gee whiz, that sounds like you can't model climate, which they can't. And so they say that they can't get the magnitude, timing, or regional details right. That's a performance that only a mother could love. They make failed predictions. There's been no warming since 98, though it was predicted to occur. CO2 has risen steadily, and they are very upset about this. There's the prediction, and there's the observation. This is another chart shows basically the same thing. I told you I was going to go fast. Um, this is one that's on a shorter time frame showing the uh, CO2 trend up and temperature flat. I was going to show the guy from Princess Bride saying inconceivable, but I had to take it out. Okay, so Kevin Trenberth, uh, he reacted to this failure of the prediction. He is an IPCC AR4 uh, chapter lead author. He cited over 100 times in EPA's endangerment finding and reconsideration documents and nearly 400 times in the IPCC, AR4, and CCSP reports. So he's a kind of a big wheel. And he's not like me. <laughs> this is what he said in one of the ClimateGate emails regarding the lack of warming since 1998, and I'm sure most of you have seen this. But it's important. And he says, the fact is that we cannot account for the lack of warming at the moment, and it is a travesty that we can't. And then he goes on. And what he says in the second part of this is that we don't know jack about what's going on in the climate system. We can't predict it, we can't understand it, and we can't explain it. And that means that any geoengineering project will be completely hopeless because we'll never know whether it's going to work or not. These regulations are geoengineering, and they'll never know whether they work or not. So. We agree with that. And this is EPA's conclusion. I mean, this is my argument. It's irrational to reach any high certainty conclusion about causation based on these three lines of evidence, given the uncertainties in the temperature record, the substantial gaping holes in their physical understanding of climate, and the complete failure of computer models to make accurate predictions. Those are the three lines of evidence. They cannot be rolled together into a high certainty conclusion as to causation. The enviros use a fancy word to describe their what, the way they mesh these lines of evidence, which is consilience. And it's just a 50-cent word to make it sound complicated. It's just taking lines of evidence and see if they fit together. Anybody can do that. <clears throat> but for it to work, the chain of inferences has to be logically robust. They have to be internally consistent, and they have to conform to real-world data. And EPA's meshing of these lines of evidence completely fails that test. It actually works in our favor because when you combine these defects in the instrumental record and the physical understanding and the modeling, it is logically impossible to support a finding to a 90 plus percent level of certainty. The way we blend them, it's mutually consistent, internally consistent and conforms to real world data. EPA paves the path from these uncertain lines of evidence to its highly certain conclusion with a series of logical fallacies. Argument from ignorance, argument from consensus, argument from authority, circular reasoning in the validation of the models, and double standards. 
none of that should survive the standard of review. This goes to Pat's argument. Can you fit greenhouse gas regulation into the Clean Air Act? I don't think so. Thank you. Mm -hmm.